Father, we come to you today to pray for the glory of our King Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would put such a burden for the lost and a passion for the glory of God in our hearts that we can't help but proclaim and talk about the things that you have done in our lives and to glorify you by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. And we want to pray for those who are doing that. We want to pray for those in other parts of our nation who are doing that, other parts of the world. We pray for missionaries and we pray for churches and pastors and evangelists and everyday ordinary believers who in their lands are telling other people about Jesus, witnessing to family members, witnessing to friends, witnessing to neighbors. And we pray, Lord, especially for the people that are doing that in places like uh, Iran, Afghanistan, North Korea, China, Vietnam, Cuba, places where they're persecuted by Muslims, where they're persecuted by communists, where they're persecuted by people of other faiths. I think of the pastors in India recently who have been uh, burned and maimed in front of their own churches by Hindus. And Father, we don't know that kind of persecution, but Lord, we're feeling the pressure. And we're feeling that the overarching message of the world to the church and to the Christian is be quiet, shut your mouth, don't say anything. And yet you've called us to speak. And we know there's a price to pay when we do that. I pray you would do something in our lives where we're willing to count the cost and we're willing to pay the price. And we pray for those that we love that are not saved. Oh, Father, for our children, for our grandchildren, for nieces and nephews, for cousins, for parents, for whoever they may be. Oh, Father, we pray you would do a work of awakening in each of our families and save those that are lost. And if it would please you, use us as tools in your hand to bring them to Jesus. And then we pray, Lord, for people in our schools. We pray for people in our workplaces. We pray for people in our neighborhoods. We pray for people who are all over our land, especially as we think about politicians. And we know that the biggest thing that needs to happen in Washington, D.C. is not for everybody to be of a certain political party or a certain political persuasion. I know I would like it if everybody up there would just be honest and if they would uphold the Constitution and uh, if they would govern in a conservative fashion. Except I know they could do that and still die and go to hell and still be corrupted and still be uh, disgraced. Father, what we need is for a resurgence of the gospel. And I pray, Father, for a spiritual awakening in our land in every aspect. And you do that through your local churches. And so I pray that we would play our part in that, that we would be faithful to be salt and to be light. I pray again that we would be able to reach our own families and our own children. But I also pray, Lord, that we'd be able to reach the families and the children in our community, in our metro area, in our state, in our nation, and even in our world. And forgive us, Lord, when we neglect some of the social ills of our nation and we don't speak up and we don't do enough and we don't get involved. 
But also, Lord, forgive us when we transfer the gospel over to the social aspect and we forget the real thing is the glory of God and eternity through faith in Christ. And so we're asking, Lord, for you to put that on our hearts and we're asking you to speak to us through your word today, change our lives and make us more effective as we witness for Christ and as we live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you will uh, <clears throat> look in your Bibles this morning, we're back in the first chapter of John, and we are going to be starting in just a few moments with the sixth verse. And I've entitled this, A Man That Ought to Be One of Your Spiritual Heroes. And the reason I say that is because I've talked to people over the years. Who's your favorite character in the Bible? Who's someone that you admire and would like to be more like in the Bible? I don't think I've ever heard anyone say John the Baptist, which doesn't mean it hasn't happened. It just means it's rare. That may be one of your spiritual heroes, and you may have studied him, and you admire him, and you know a lot about him, but I'm going to guess for most people, no, that's not one that they really know about, or whatever you know about him, you know simply in a vague uh, manner. But... I want to uh, tell you why before we get to our text. Why does this matter? And why does his name come up? And why does his story come up? Well, in Luke 7, 24, <clears throat> when uh, John the Baptist is in prison, uh, Jesus gives a tribute to him. And it says in uh, verses 24 through 28, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to talk to the crowds concerning John, meaning John the Baptist, not the apostle. And he says, what did you uh, go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts or palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Now listen to this. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now, when you look at that type of tribute, I wonder, do we think the same thing about Jesus, uh, John the Baptist that Jesus thought? That's a pretty high tribute. This man named John the Baptist who baptized Jesus and so many others in the Jordan River was the last of the great prophets. 400 years there had been no prophet in Israel until John. And John, the forerunner, who comes in the spirit of Elijah to make the way of the Lord straight. Kings in those days, whenever word got out that they were going to travel to a certain town, maybe to Bethlehem or Nazareth or something like that, they had a forerunner, an advance man who went before them, and they made sure that the road was straight. They filled in the potholes. Uh, if necessary, they would fill in the, the valley and make it all level ground. They made it wide enough for the king's um, carriage and for his horses. They made it as smooth as possible. They made everything ready so the king could go do 
whatever he wanted to do. And that's the language that is used of John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord. That was one of the signs and the marks of a king. He had a forerunner who made all of that ready. And Jesus says that those prophecies were fulfilled in John the Baptist. What a, what a great person that he was. And when we read our text in the book of John chapter 1, verse 6 through 13, right after we read about Christ, the Creator, in the, wor uh, the Word was with God and the Word was God, those type of things, and before we read the part about the Word becoming flesh, we have this little interlude here that says in verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light. Notice that's light with a capital L. That's Jesus. That all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world and uh, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. This is speaking of Jesus. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right, the authority, the power to become, think of it, children of God. Those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What a great passage. And there are so many different ways we could go. But John, as he writes this, seems to be focusing in on John the Baptist. And he makes a big deal about this. And he talks about him more later on. So we'll try not to uh, get ahead of ourselves. Why should he be a spiritual hero, why did he elicit such praise from the lips of our own Lord Jesus Christ as uh, uh, he gave in the Gospel of Luke? And by the way, if you want to know a lot about John the Baptist, the Gospel of Luke tells us um, probably more about him than any other of the four Gospels. And uh, let me just give you some things to think about, things that we ought to copy things that we ought to emulate things that we ought to pray into our lives we can do the same things certainly in different ways and in a different time but uh, the same idea is here number one notice that John was a clear and a bold witness now it says in here and makes it real clear he was not the light and we read in other gospels where the Pharisees and the Sadducees would come and say are you the Christ no, I'm not the Christ. And um, I said, the one is coming after me. I baptize with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals, that, that type of thing. We uh, understand that as John was doing this, he was not the light, but he was a reflector of the light. I was out last night, and I was uh, walking in our neighborhood and I waited until things kind of cooled down and the sun wasn't bearing down on me. And uh, I saw the moon as it started to shine. It was a beautiful moon and a beautiful evening. And I could see stars and all of that. It was really great. 
And uh, I thought about the moon and I thought about John the Baptist. He was not that light. You know, we look at the moon and we talk about the light of the moon and the full moon and all of that. The moon doesn't have any light in and of itself, does it? It's a satellite of the earth. And what we see in the moon is a reflection of the sun, the sun's light. And that's what John was. He was like a moon in Judea as he was baptizing. And any light that you saw in John was really the light of God that is, was reflected off of him and shining through him as he uh, did his work. He was a bold and a clear witness for Christ. He never drew attention unto himself, but always was the one that would point out Christ. Remember, he's the one that said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And uh, he was a proclaimer of Jesus Christ. And he was always bold in all of this. Why is that? Because in verse 6, he was sent from God. He had a purpose. He had an assignment. And he was the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And here he is. He was assigned to the Jews that the Messiah and the kingdom of God had come. And uh, his name was John. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. And he came for a witness to bear witness of the light. He was a reflection of the light. He was pointing to the light. Whenever we look at the moon, we ought to be thinking about the sun in our solar system. And we ought to be thinking about that light that comes from the sun even through the moon. And when we watch the moon go through its various phases, we ought to be reminded of the creative order of God and uh, just think about how marvelous it is, how wonderful it is that our planet is situated just right in the solar system for our lives to exist. We may think it's hot, but it's not near as hot as it is on Mercury or Venus, for example. And if we veer, uh, not, we don't have to veer very much toward the sun, our Earth I'm speaking of. <coughs> you think it's hot now? You can't imagine life couldn't exist. And so everything is perfectly ordered and uh, perfectly made and designed by God. And even the moon reminds us of the perfect creation, the perfect plan of God. But the moon also points to the light of the sun, which our earth revolves around, as you know. Well, that's John. <clears throat> It's as if he is revolving around Christ. Everything is around Christ. Everything is for the glory of Christ, the purpose of Christ. Everything that he does as a witness for Christ, his baptism, his preaching, all of those things is to proclaim the kingdom of God has come because the king, Jesus Christ, has come to earth. And so he bore witness of the light and he wasn't shy about it, uh, not at all. And uh, so some uh, Pharisees and religious people showed up and he goes, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? We ought to start our services like that, right? Uh, what are you doing here, you snakes? You know, who warned you? And uh, there he is. And yet people were coming and they were amazed by all of this and they were baptizing, showing their repentance and uh, faith in God and in the Messiah who was to come. And John was the one who had the privilege of introducing him. Sometimes when uh, we do weddings, sometimes they have the time after the pictures where you come into the fellowship hall and they have someone. Sometimes it's uh, me, sometimes it's a family member. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to present to you Mr. and Mrs. 
You know, and of course, I do that in the ceremony as well. But they bring them into the fellowship hall and they introduce them. This is John. Uh, in fact, in one place, he says, I'm not a part of the bride. I'm a friend of the bridegroom. He's the one that introduces the world to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does it clearly and he does it boldly. He does it without regard for what other people think or what the consequences might be. He just simply fulfills his assignment. I wish that as Christians today, I, I don't want to use the methods of the world or the methods of uh, those who are perverted and, and uh, engaged in abominable things, but I wish we did have their boldness. I wish we weren't as quiet. I wish we weren't as timid. I wish we weren't as cautious as we are. I wish we would be bold like John to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, to give thanks and to give glory to his name, to witness for him. And that's the one thing that I think about, first of all, that I find in these verses that I admire. Now, uh, as we consider John, I want you to think about some things that we do know about him. His, his birth was very significant. Now, you remember his mother was named Elizabeth. And his father was named Zechariah. They were both of the bloodline of Aaron, which means they had priestly blood in them. And his father, Zechariah, actually was a priest in the temple at Jerusalem. And you remember the scripture tells us in Luke chapter 1 that when it was time for Zechariah to minister in the temple at the altar of incense, that while he was there, he saw an angel. And the angel was none less than Gabriel. Aren't very many angels named in the Bible, but Gabriel is significant. And Gabriel says, Zechariah, the Lord has uh, heard your prayers and favored you. Your wife is going to bear a son. Now, like so many of uh, those situations, you know, how, how is this going to happen? Do you know how old I am? Do you know how old my wife is? She's past childbearing. And uh, Gabriel, remember, told him uh, it's going to happen. You call his name John. He is going to be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. He's going to be a lifetime Nazarite, not a Nazarene, but a Nazarite, never to cut his hair, never to drink wine or strong drink. And uh, he's supposed to stand out in a crowd, in other words. And um, his name is going to be John. And you remember that uh, Elizabeth did indeed conceive. In fact, when Gabriel told Mary that she was going to be the mother of Jesus, he used as a sign the fact that her cousin, get it, cousin Elizabeth, was with child. And uh, she, Mary goes to see Elizabeth and uh, to stay there with Elizabeth and Zechariah while she is pregnant with the Lord Jesus Christ. All this tied together. And yes, John and Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus were related. And so uh, you remember when John the Baptist was born, all of the people there, they were so excited about it. God, they, they viewed childbirth not as a punishment like our society does, but as a blessing from God. <clears throat> so the people there are thinking, what are we going to name the child? And uh, they all assumed his name was going to be Zachariah Jr., Zachariah II. And uh, Elizabeth goes, no, his name's going to be John. They said, John? 
Why John? You don't have any relatives or family members named John. So they got Zechariah, who had been uh, mute ever since he met with the angel because of his unbelief. He writes on a tablet, his name is John. And from that point on, he's able to speak. And uh, he gives a wonderful prayer and a poem of praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what a birth. Now, it wasn't a virgin birth. It wasn't anything like that. But it was certainly a supernatural thing, kind of like Abraham and Sarah those type of things, God gave him as a gift, a specific child for a specific time and a specific assignment. And then we uh, think about the way that he uh, lived and how significant his life was. He lived in the desert. He uh, wore a, a, a coat of camel's hair, and that camel's hair is tightly woven. It can repel water and that type of thing. Had a leather belt pulling it all together. They didn't have buttons or zippers or anything like that in those days. And uh, it also says he ate wild honey and locust. Okay, yuck. Now, um, it's interesting. There's controversy over this. What does it mean that he ate locust? And a lot of Bible scholars say, well, that's because he ate locusts, the bugs. They look like grasshoppers. When we were in Israel, they told us, no, uh, the Jews called the fruit of the carob tree locust. And so probably he ate from the tree. And the wild honey, they get honey in Israel from dates, from the date palms. And they take the dates and they make honey out of them. And that's what they said while we were in Israel on that. But a lot of Bible scholars that I've read don't necessarily agree with that. I don't know if it's because they've never been to Israel and heard our tour, tour guide or if, uh, you know, something's wrong. But nonetheless, what he ate was somewhat unusual, living in the desert, being there by himself until he goes into his public ministry. And uh, boy, did he kind of attract a lot of attention, so much attention that while he's baptizing there at the Jordan River in Judea, and it says that all Judea came to hear him. And um, certainly it wasn't every single person in Judea. It's, it's a little bit of hyperbole there. It, it, it seemed like it. He was attracting great, great crowds. So much so that the religious leaders said, we got to check this guy out. And so they went to go hear what he was saying. And that's when he said to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He called them out as Hypocrites. I mean, he came from them. His parents were in the uh, family of the priest, and his dad was indeed a priest, so he knew that life, and he knew the way that they lived. Isn't it significant that he's called out of that to live in the desert, and then to call them out as he proclaims the uh, year of the Lord? It's amazing. People that will speak up against corruption sometimes are appreciated, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they pay a high price like that so here he is living as a Nazarite in the desert and clothed like Elijah the prophet and in the spirit of Elijah and uh, you notice that his purpose also was significant because he's the forerunner of the Christ what an honor what an honor and to think that he was born for the sole purpose of preparing the way of the Lord, making straight the paths and filling in the potholes, so to speak, and uh, being the one who would present to the world the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. 
And you remember when Jesus presented himself for baptism, that John looked at him and said, you want me to baptize you? Uh, you're the one that ought to be baptizing me. And uh, that's, that's the kind of person that we find here proclaiming the kingdom of God that uh, Jesus is not only the king, but the Lamb of God. But you know, his death was also significant. Have you forgotten about the way that he died? This is a guy, a commoner, who says to the king of that area, he says to him, it is not lawful for you to have your father's wife. Now, we all know that there is corruption in Washington, D.C., don't we? And it's been there for a long time. Sometimes it's hidden, sometimes it comes out. But uh, I want to ask you the question today, what would it be like if all of us confronted all of the people in Washington who are living an immoral life? Can you imagine what your life would be like? I promise you the IRS would be upon you so fast, it would make your head swim. Anybody want to be audited? Anybody want to be investigated? I promise you that anything and everything you've ever done in your life would be exposed because their game is, I've got to make you look worse than I am and I've got to destroy you so you have no credibility at all. We've called that the politics of personal destruction uh, since the 90s. It's kind of been that name. That's the game you play in Washington. Well, you know what? It didn't originate with us. It didn't originate in our time. Leaders and rulers have always fought corruption. They always made rules where they would enforce an exact punishment for other people, but not so much for them. They would cover it up. They would get away with it. And so this king is living with his brother's wife, ex-wife, and John the Baptist comes to him and says to the king, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, how do you think that's going to go over? This man is a preacher of righteousness, not just to the down and out. I mean, you go out here to a person who's drug addicted on the street and they just got released from prison and all of that and tell them, hey, I've got news for you. You're a sinner. They would go, tell me something I don't know. But when you would go to the high and mighty, to the religious and to the seemingly moral, to the rich and the powerful, to the elite, to those who hold life and death in their hands, and you start calling out their sins, you're going to pay a price for it. And so John is put in prison. And you remember that they were uh, having a party and that uh, there was a, a young lady who was dancing before Herod and uh, he... Uh, really liked her let's just put it that way and so he says anything you want out of my kingdom and so she goes to her mother and the mother said tell him you want John the Baptist head on a platter well now he's trapped and so John the Baptist was beheaded and let's just say this he died because he was honest he died because he was truthful he died because he was proclaiming something that was right how many of us would do anything like that he died a noble for a noble cause and that caused Jesus to say to him there's never been anyone born of woman that is greater than John the Baptist and so when I think about those things I think about all of us today we want to have purpose in our life one of the best-selling books 
of all time is the purpose-driven life. And yet we find that in the Scripture we do have a purpose, and that is to live for the glory and the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're never called just to simply shut up and be nice. We are called to be salt. We are called to be light. We are called to be the light of the world because of Christ living in us. And we are called to be honest about these kind of things and to share the gospel clearly. John did that, and that's an amazing thing. So he was a bold witness. That's what we ought to be as well. Number two, notice that John the Baptist was authentically humble. And the Bible does say that if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you're to be the servant of all. You're to be the least of all. And John the Baptist certainly um, identified as that. He says he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. He wasn't there to take up turf and territory and call attention to himself and brag about himself. He was there to talk about Jesus and the plan of God and all of that. I want you to notice as you read through the life of John the Baptist in all the different Gospels and look at what he said and look at what he did and how he lived He was never like a lot of preachers today. A lot of preachers today, they have the message of, I am everything you're supposed to be. I dress like you're supposed to dress. I live like you're supposed to live. I have faith like you're supposed to have faith and all of that kind of stuff. John the Baptist never pointed to himself. He never said, I am or anything like that. He pointed to the fact that Christ, he is, he is, he is. And everything we do ought to be pointing to Christ. And everything we teach ought to be pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, John did this and it wasn't just because he had to or because people were listening or it wouldn't sound right. He did it because that's what he really believed. That's what he really thought. And so... uh, You uh, think about the fact that he was sent from God. That's an important word in there. He was sent. And then also the word witness is pretty big in that test. He was there to be a witness. The word witness in the Greek um, is actually martyros in the Greek. And it's translated witness. Now, you say, that sounds an awful lot like martyr. Yeah, that wasn't the original meaning of the word. The original meaning of the word was to be called before a judge, called before a court... And, you know, you put your hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And then you take the witness stand. What are you supposed to do? You tell about what you have seen. You tell about what you know. You're not supposed to speculate. And you're not supposed to give second or third hand knowledge. This is about you and what you have seen and about what you know. Okay? And so John was a witness. And the problem is because so many Christian witnesses were killed for their faith, the word martyr lost its meaning in terms of witness. It meant somebody who dies for the faith. Well, John did both. John died for truth, and John lived for truth, and John was a witness of the truth in everything that he did and there are a lot of people that are paying that same price today in our world in america we're so comfortable we don't really see it we have our freedoms and we thank god for our freedoms and we cherish them but uh, other people around the world are being imprisoned and some of them even being killed for being no different than you are they're witnesses for Jesus Christ. They believe in Jesus Christ and they live for Jesus Christ. And we are told in the Bible not to forget them. But 
So John gave a message of not I am, but he is, and he's sent, and he's a witness to the Lord. In John 3.30, when uh, John the Baptist's disciples are saying, hey, that one you baptized, he's getting more people than we are. And John made this statement. This tells his heart. He must increase, and I must decrease. Now, how would that change your life? If you had that same spirit, how would that change your life? How would you view the trials of life? How would you view your inadequacies? How would you view any of those things? How would you view other people? They seem to be blessed and I'm not being blessed. Well, he must increase and I must decrease. You can see the authentic humility. Not just the words, not just the pretense, not just the cover-up. That's his heart. In uh, John 1, 35 through 37, a little bit ahead of us, says the next day again, John was standing with uh, two of his disciples, two of his disciples now. And he and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And then what happened? The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And you know what? John, how much problem did John have with that? Zero. He probably had to take a half a baby aspirin to get to sleep that night. It didn't bother him at all. And whenever it was brought up, John always pointed to Jesus as long as Jesus is being glorified. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians where there were some people that were trying to kind of put down Paul in order to advance their own ministries. And Paul's attitude, he goes, I don't care as long as Jesus is being preached. What if we really felt that way? Lord, we sing a song that says, Lord, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Do you mean that? What if it costs you more than you've ever paid before? What if it even costs you your life? Because there have been people throughout Christian history who have made that ultimate sacrifice. And there are people who are doing it even now. There's a lot of persecution in the world today. In fact, um, I would encourage you to go see the movie about John MacArthur's church and some churches in Canada. It's called Essential Church. And it's about during the COVID crisis how the government started saying that uh, tattoo parlors and bars and strip clubs and all of these things, marijuana shops, all of those, they can stay open because they're quote-unquote essential, but you better not try to go to church. And they even threatened pastors with uh, fines and jail time during that time in America, much less in Canada. Canada's got their own set of problems. What are we willing to do And how far are we willing to go? Because persecution is coming. Persecution is here. It's just waiting for an opportunity to express itself more. We better pray for our children. We better pray for our teenagers. Because that generation following us may face things we can only imagine. So don't just tolerate them. Pray for them. Pray for them. They may be the generation chosen by God to suffer unimaginable things. John was willing to do all of that, and he did it with great humility. He wasn't competing with anyone else. Number three, notice something else about John, why he should be our spiritual hero. He witnessed the great irony of Christ's coming. Now, this next verse in verse 10, think about the irony. Jesus 
was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Jesus, the creator, is here. (sighs) Yeah, if we believe in a creator, if we even believe in creation, even the Jews, they didn't pay attention. Nobody noticed when he was born. Nobody noticed the way that he lived, except for a brief time when he was 12 years old in the temple, and people said, who's that smart alecky kid? How does he know all that he knows? But they never went any further than that. Think about it. In the world, and the world just, you know, passes by. Nobody really all that impressed. In fact, Isaiah said about Jesus, there was nothing about him that was physically appealing. He wasn't particularly tall. He wasn't particularly handsome. He wasn't, he didn't have any features where you go, wow, look at that guy. He didn't have a halo around him like you've seen in all the pictures. Nothing about him. He just kind of blended in. He was probably pretty muscular, working in a carpenter shop. Uh, his hairstyle would have been like the Jews typically wore it. They usually wore their hair cropped, not excessively long or anything like that. He lived his life very ordinarily uh, from the time that he was born until he had his public ministry. And then that's why they were so shocked and amazed by him. He seemed like just an ordinary man. In fact, when he preached in his own home synagogue, they said, Who's this guy? I mean, isn't he? Don't we know his parents? And haven't, you know, haven't we been around him? And yet, what a great, great man he was. They didn't know. When he said, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence, they wanted to stone him. That's how much they liked it. He was in the world, and the world did not know him and did not receive him. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. Okay? Now, I want you to think about how ironic it is. Here's the Messiah. And every week in the synagogue, what did they pray for? Oh, Heavenly Father, send your Messiah to the Jews. And God did, and they didn't even notice it. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. When we think about Christ's coming, and we think about all the prophecies in the Old Testament, for example, in Genesis 12, 18, we know that he had to be a Jew of the seed of Abraham. Well, there were lots of those, so big deal, right? And then we find that it narrows down, and we find in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, That he had to be from the line of David. Now that really does narrow it down. And that's why the genealogies that you skip over in Matthew and in Luke are really, really important. Because they are proof that Jesus was who he said he was. He comes from the line of David. He is uh, actually qualified to sit on the throne of Israel just like David did. And that's why it said he would rule and sit on the throne throne of his father David it was also predicted in the Old Testament that he would die an untimely death and be the ultimate sacrifice you might look at Isaiah 53 what a great chapter that is in verse 5 wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed and then it was also prophesied That when the Messiah came, he would have a forerunner. The Jews had not seen anything like John the Baptist in 400.
hundred years. Oh, they'd seen some little movements come up here and there, but they never amounted to anything. But what John was doing was so significant, so impactful. And when they ask him about it, he says, there's another one coming after me, and he's the one who is the real deal. And that uh, reflects Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's John the Baptist. Now, we didn't even cover hardly any of the prophecies, but any self-respecting, knowledgeable Jew would have had to have looked at Jesus and said, wait a minute, something is going on here. But the irony is he came not to the Romans, not to the Greeks, not to uh, some tribe somewhere in South America. He came to his own those who were like him, those who said they believed in his God, those who read his scriptures, those who were praying for his coming, and his own received him not. What a heartbreaking verse that is. I still pray for the people of Israel to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord and to receive him as their Messiah. And uh, there's a great blessing in praying for Israel and loving Israel. And number four, as we uh, wrap this up, notice John's a hero because he was faithful to the gospel. I don't think it's any accident that John the Apostle included this in the middle of his little biography and testimony about the baptizer. John the baptizer is the literal uh, name that he had. Because it says in verse 12, But as many as received him, those who did receive him, Jew or Gentile, whomever they may be, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not by natural birth, in other words, nor of the will of the flesh, not because other people wanted you to be born or conceived you and gave birth to you, nor of the will of man, not because of societal pressure, but of God. And this is what John really knew, and this is what he believed, and this is what he proclaimed. Don't look to me. There's another coming after you, and he baptizes not with water, but with the Holy Spirit, which is what happens the moment that you and I are saved. We are baptized. We are immersed into the Spirit of God, into the body of Christ, into the kingdom of God. And water baptism is just merely a picture of the spiritual reality of what God has done in your life. But he says it all centers on this, and this is what one of the words John uses over and over and over, and that is this word believe. Now, it's not just simply saying, I believe that Jesus existed. It's saying that I believe in a manner of submission to him that his death and his resurrection are true, and that that is the only means of my salvation, my justification. The uh, word belief, it means that we've got to be convinced that Jesus is really and truly the Son of God. And it means that we must make up our minds about him, because if Jesus is only a man, then there is no reason why we should give him uh, any credence at all he doesn't matter he's just another figure in history and he doesn't really matter but if he is the son of God well then he matters his life matters his 
uh, miracles matter and his teaching matters and his death matters and his resurrection absolutely matters. You can't ignore it. You've got to look at that and you've got to decide where you're going to be. Are you going to be like those who came into his own and his own received him not and just live your life and die and go to hell with all of them? Or are you going to be that other person as many as received him, trusted him, clinged to him, relied upon him, and that's an exclusive thing. It's relying on him and him alone for the cleansing of sin, surrendering to him as the only true king, and the king, the only king that matters, the king above all kings, and the Lord above all lords. We have to look at him and learn from him, study him, think about him, until we are driven to the conclusion that this is none other than the Son of God, and that atonement comes only and exclusively through Him. Are you still trusting in yourself? Are you still thinking that you're really, uh, well, you're not perfect, but you're not all that bad? Are you, are you still thinking that basically all religions kind of are you know, leading to one God and God is so merciful and kind. He'll save anybody anywhere at any time, which is true, by the way, if you come through Jesus Christ. And are you still thinking that uh, it doesn't really matter what you believe, that uh, we just have a different name for God than the Muslims or the Buddhists or anybody else? Or do you see Christ as the most unique figure in human history? Do you see him as the son of God? Do you see him as the one that John the Baptist bore witness to? And the witness was true. He is the lamb of God to be sacrificed for sin. And anyone who trusts in him, wherever they may be, whatever race they may be from, whatever their situation in life may be, he will save. And then my question is, have you called out to him? The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the Bible also says that for those who are saved, we, like John, are to be witnesses to the truth. How you doing? How you doing in all of that? Well, I'm pretty good. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't do all of those things. How are you doing in what he called you to do? It's not just about the don'ts. Are you busy doing the do's that he called you? And John the Baptist is a hero, and he's a great example of how we ought to live and how we ought to think. So I encourage you to study him, to think about him, and consider what Jesus said. There's nobody better on the earth, nobody greater on the earth. Why isn't he one of our top ten heroes of the faith? And why is it that we kind of go over that and ignore him and just say, well, he baptized Jesus. So much more to his life than that. And so much more can be added to your life if you will trust Christ and then emulate heroes of the faith like John the Baptist. Will you think about it? Will you consider it? And will you look into it? I hope you will. I hope you will. Can we pray together? Father, uh, as we look at this passage today, we see two kinds of people. Those who didn't receive the Lord, very religious, maybe even very moral, but they didn't really care about Christ. They didn't receive Christ. They didn't trust in Christ. They were very self-sufficient. And uh, they thought they were good. And they looked down on other people. And they saw themselves as acceptable to God. 
And Lord, there are people like that today, maybe even seated in this auditorium. And my prayer is that the walls would come crashing down, that they would see themselves as you see them, as sinners who are on their way to a devil's hell and lake of fire for eternity. And they would see Christ as the sinless, blameless Lamb of God whose sacrifice takes away the sins of people like us. And I pray that they would trust you today. And I pray, Lord, for every Christian within the sound of my voice. Why are we so quiet? Why are we so intimidated by the world? Why is it that we kind of look at them as though they are in control when they are not? You are in control. And pleasing the world gets us nowhere. They'll turn on us. They turn on their own all the time. But we can please you. And you will bless us. You will reward us. And you are faithful to your own. You love us with an everlasting love. Our salvation is once and for all and eternal through Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, help us to love Jesus as we should and to show other people the grace, the mercy, the power, the sacrifice, and the salvation that comes from our Lord. Let us be true salt and light. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.